0: Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church, Owasso. Sermon podcast. Grace changes everything. If there ever was a scene to bring out Mel Gibson and paint half his face blue to ride across the valley on a horse, this would be the passage. There is so much testosterone in this passage, it's crazy. I mean, this is like William Wallace in the Bible. I mean, can you imagine Nehemiah takes these men and he says, you better fight for your wives and your daughters and your home. And someday, someday when we will be at peace, we'll look back. And, you know, you can just imagine William Wallace. Oh, Nehemiah. Nehemiah. On this All Saints Day, I think it's pretty humbling for us to think that people fought with swords at their right hand and construction tools in their left to rebuild the city of God for us. And as God's new covenant people who have all the inherited promises of Israel, we stand on their shoulders, not in a city in the Middle East, but we stand proclaiming the glory of the Lord across the world. As Habakkuk said, the glory of the Lord shall fill the earth as what? As the waters cover the sea. And we know from your good Bible reading and interpretation that there is one who Nehemiah points to who also left the side of the king, the comfort of the palace, and he came down to help rebuild To commission his people. But our Lord Jesus Christ didn't come in the incarnation at the risk of his life. The Lord Jesus, of course, came at the cost of his life. And the Lord Jesus intends to help us see in Nehemiah 4 something profoundly practical that you and I need to learn today. That is the relationship between God's sovereign promise and our human responsibility. Notice right off the cuff in Nehemiah chapter 4, Nehemiah says that he prayed to God and he set a guard. He prayed to God and he set a guard. God had promised that Israel would come back into the land, that they would return. Nehemiah promised that, and Jeremiah promised that in Jeremiah chapter 25 many, many decades before the Babylonian captivity, and here they are. They're back in the land. They're fulfilling God's promise. But question, if God promised it, it's going to happen, right? So why can't we just sit back and just rest and let him do all the work? Because God has called us to set a guard, not just pray, But set a guard. You see this interworking of God's sovereignty and human responsibility all throughout scripture. In in Isaiah chapter 38, you remember uh, Hezekiah? uh, Isaiah intervened for Hezekiah, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, and the Lord gave him 15 more years. And Hezekiah had the promise of God that you'll live 15 more years. And then, isn't it interesting, right after that, what did Isaiah tell Hezekiah to do? To go and to take. The baked cakes and to rub them on your boils. Yes, it was God's promise, and also it was the medicine. Yes, it was God's promise, but also it was your responsibility. Or think about the passage, for example, in um, um, Acts 27. Remember when, when Paul is on the, on the boat, God says, I, you will get there, you will get, you will get to the shore when they're in the midst of the storm. An angel promised them they'd get to the shore in Acts chapter 27. And you remember Paul is on the boat. He's on the boat with some sailors and some soldiers. And they're in this incredibly hard storm and their boat is breaking up. And the angel says, you're going to make it. But isn't it interesting that when the sailors, the sailors run over to cut the the, the lifeboats down, Paul goes over to the sailors and says, if you get off of this ship, we're all going to perish. Well, which was it? Didn't the angel promise them that they would get to the shore? So why is Paul making a big deal? Because Paul knew that God's sovereignty and human responsibility go together. You pray and you set a guard. God can be sovereign, and yet he he orchestrates his sovereignty through means for which he asks us to be involved. And this, for us, we tend to separate these. We tend on one camp to talk about how God is just sovereign, and so we can just relax, and we don't have to live holy lives because God is sought. we're justified by faith, and so therefore, who cares what you do? Sin so that grace may abound. And I think Paul had something to say about that, didn't he? He calls us to be his by his sovereign election. And when we're Christians, we look back, not as we become Christians, but once we're Christians, we look back and we see how God was far more at work in our life than we could have ever imagined, orchestrating details of our life to put us in places to bring us to a knowledge of himself that only he could do. And yet we look back to see the comforting doctrine, the comforting doctrine of his electing grace. There's a, there's a book by a man named Andrew uh, Wilson that I've recently read called Remaking the World. And he builds on a Harvard a psychologist who, in the, um, who decades ago talked about how Western people are weird. They're weird. They're Western. They're educated. They're industrious. They're rich and they're democratic. And Andrew Wilson builds on it and he says, well, actually, we are weirder. We're Western, we're educated, we're, in, we're very industrious, we're rich, we're democratic, we're actually ex Christian, and we're romantic. And in his chapter on the industriousness of what it means to be Western, and when I say Western, I don't mean like cowboy hat and stirrups, I mean like you're part of the West, part of the world from Europe over to America. And when he talks about the industriousness of the Western people, he talks about the rise of the Industrial Revolution and how everybody learned to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and to focus on their responsibility, their responsibility. And is that true for us? Should we care about those things for which we are called and responsible? Well, of course, you have spiritual gifts to steward for his glory's sake. We are called to be industrious people, which is one of the reasons why European scientific expansion exploded after the Reformation because it was a rediscovery of the gifts that God has given us. And not to just sit back and let the priests and the clergy intercede for us, but to yearn and to pray and to extend God's kingdom through the gifts he's given to each person. You see this conversation between uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility all throughout church history too J.I. Packer has read a phenomenal little book many years ago called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God which I commend to you if you haven't read that and in that book he tells a story of Spurgeon who once was asked if he could ever reconcile these two truths to each other God's sovereignty and human responsibility and Spurgeon said I wouldn't try because I never reconcile friends. Friends? Spurgeon's interlocutor replied. Yes, friends. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. Where did you ever imagine that? They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in endless states of a cold war with each other. They, Packer writes, they are friends and they work together. For your sanctification. In Acts chapter two, right after uh, the crucifixion, Peter's one of Peter's first sermons, he brings these two things together. He says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, divine sovereignty. And then right after that, whom you crucified. And killed. Delivered up by the foreknowledge of God, and delivered uh, and killed and crucified by the hands of lawless men. So, what does this mean for us? The main point is that we are to pray to God and set a guard whenever we face opposition, which Nehemiah faced from Sanballat and Tobiah in this text. We are to pray to God, and we are to set a guard whenever we face opposition. And the teaching is, first, that God is in control, and we are responsible. God is sovereignly in control, and we are responsible. And yes, of course, God is ultimately sovereignly in control. Absolutely, He rules and reigns by His might for His glory. And He doesn't need any of us. But He invites us in, and He commissions us, and He calls us to be responsible to steward the gifts that he has given to us. And the implications, of course, of this um, are that we can cheer up because no matter how bad things get, no matter how bad things get, God is completely in control. Isn't that good news? And it's really good news because you are responsible, but it's also good news because you can't completely mess up your life. (laughs) You are responsible, but you can't completely mess up your life. And I know some of you have tried. (laughs) But he is sovereignly in control, and he orchestrates all things for his good and for his glory through his sovereign decree and command. Not only are we to pray to God and are we to set a guard, but we are to do so when we face opposition. Because notice in Nehemiah chapter 4, the whole of chapter 4 through 7, which chapter 4 really encapsulates, and I encourage you to read chapters 4 through 7 this week because we'll pick up with chapter 8 through 10 next week. But the whole of chapter 4 encapsulates what's going on through chapters 4, 5, 6, And seven, that is, they are facing constant opposition. And when you believe in God's promises, the teaching is that when you believe in God's promises and you live in light of them, you will face opposition. Just ask any elder of this church. The work of leading your church puts a target on people's back that not everybody sees. But it is bright and neon for the evil one. And it is not my privilege to tell the stories of how the Lord has attacked your elders and how by the grace of God they have remained faithful. But when you believe in God's covenant promises and you follow and live in light of them, you can expect opposition. Should we be surprised? I mean, why are you here? I mean, did you think you were joining a country club? I mean, the Christian life is a fight. Read Nehemiah chapter four again. I mean, some of us in this church so long to pray that they want you to see how the forces of darkness are at work in this congregation in ways that it just seems like Presbyterians are blind to, talking about the work of the evil spirits among us. But it is through the faithful prayers of people that literally we fight against those that want to come, either wolves in our midst who want to distract us from the heart of the gospel, or forces of darkness that take our children or, our, or our attack our families. And there are those in this church who God has sovereignly called here, and I praise God for them who love to pray. And I would just commend to you, would you please pray? Because you don't think that as we move into a building and we welcome more people, that Satan's not gonna love to love to love to love to mess with this church. Please pray. You will be mocked, and you will be ridiculed. And it's interesting to, me, interesting to me that as we seek to live with the knowledge that God is in control and use our gifts and efforts to the best of our ability, we will we will get attacked. Think about think about not only the men who are working with a sword on one hand and construction tools in the other, praying for one another, but think about in. Mark chapter 1 or Matthew chapter 3 and and 4, Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit comes down upon him and and the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There does not get, there's not a better place to be than that moment in time right there where you see the presence of the Trinity, a dove descending, a father crying out, the son being baptized to fulfill righteousness and follow John the Baptist's last command of the Old Testament to be baptized, which Jesus fulfilled. And there he is. It's a beautiful moment. And then what happens right after that? He's taken into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. Or 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah is on Mount Carmel and he defeats the prophets of Baal. This amazing moment where God comes down and shows the prophets of Baal that he's the one true God. And right after that, Elijah goes into a deep depression. Or Daniel doing the disciplines that he was called to do. He's he's being faithful to God's word and he's doing the disciplines. And right after that, he is turned in. For his obedience to God's word, and he has to be put into the den of lions. Or Ezra. Ezra, he reads the law to God's people. And as you heard Nathan preach for us several weeks ago, he reads the law to God's people and, they're like, yes, we will obey it. This is awesome. And then they all intermarry and disobey God's word with people who don't believe in God's covenant promises. And Ezra's faced with the mess of God's people in trying to sort that out. And the whole book of Ezra kind of ends with like a, huh, we gave it a good go. And if we could pass the microphone around, every single one of you could stand up and talk about the highs and the lows the highs and the lows and some of you even right now are suffering from some really deep depression and we want to pray over you and care for you and love you and help you and this church is a church where it's okay not to always be okay and the way that you preserve that in a in a church is by the culture of that church which you maintain i don't maintain it lead it maybe but i don't maintain it you have to maintain it you welcome others who struggle because the mark of you growing in Christianity is your struggle against sin, not necessarily your victory over that sin. And as we continue to struggle over sin, though we are freed from its penalty because of the cross of Christ, we are not freed from its power. And therefore, struggle marks us as God's people. In chapter 4, 1 to 3, Sanballat and Tobiah mocked and ridiculed the Jewish people. In verses 7 to 8, They worked to try to create confusion. They tried to change their plans. What are you doing? You're rebuilding the wall? Why are you doing this? It makes no sense. There's too much rubble. They're trying to confuse them. In chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, Tobias, Sanballat, and Geshen, the Arab, devise a new plan to distract Nehemiah. They try to bring Nehemiah out of the picture. They try to send him back to the king so that they could then get their grips and their, their talons around the people again because they are losing cultural power. They dominated that city like mafia bosses, and their reign. Is ending when they secure the walls of that city because the walls of the city protect the people. Inside the walls of that city, there can be an economy that can flourish. Inside the walls of that city, there can be safety. Inside the walls of that city, there can be a flourishing city. And Tobiah and Sinbad took advantage of the fact that it was in disrepair. In verses five to nine of chapter six, they provide false evidence to discredit Nehemiah. When you're doing great things for the kingdom, you will face the greatest opposition and persecution. You only have to look at the lives of Billy Graham. You only have to listen to the late Tim Keller tell stories of how people tried to sabotage his ministry. And you only have to think of the many people that you know in your life for whom the sabotage was effective. And the truth of the matter is we are all prophets, priests, and kings, and we need to pray for the preservation, purity, love, care of our community groups, and our neighbors, and our homes. Jesus said in the beatitude that we least like in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and blessed are you, and others revile you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Paul says in his last letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And what's interesting is that the founders of the world's great religions, the founders of the world's great religions... Almost every single one of them, if they didn't die at war, they died in peace as old men. (laughs) But it is interesting to me that the founder of the truth, the Lord Jesus Christ, came and he died not in peace, but he dies in shame, not as an old man, but he dies young. He's tragically executed. Why? Because his claims were so much greater than every other world religious leader. If what he says is true, then he can't just be the agent of your personal peace. He can't just be the peace of one tribe. He is the savior of the entire world. And of course, after his resurrection, Jesus was. And we know from historians that it didn't take long And today, we can see that Christianity is the only world religion that has had its headquarters in every single continent around the globe. And today, if we apply the gospel in all areas of our life, you you will be confronted and you will be ridiculed and you will be mocked. If you think I'm kidding, just think about the conversations some of you have had with your relatives who are conspiracy theorists. Talking about applying the gospel, you don't understand it's a conspiracy on the one hand. And on the other hand, if, if you've ever been a student in New Testament studies at any university in this country, you know that the one thing you cannot do if you're a student of the New Testament and higher education is actually believe the New Testament is true. And so, friends, we have opposition from the right and we have opposition from the left as God's people. And we have to stay centered on the heart of the heart of the heart, which is the gospel. A sword in one hand, construction tools in the next. Prayer and set a guard amidst the opposition. And we tend to want to separate, we want to move away from the opposition. And this is why so many of you quite honestly use religion like a crutch and Jesus is frankly like one of your employees because you're afraid of the opposition. Well, I just want to encourage you and lovingly say as to use the Greek, buck up because it is a world full of opposition and you will stand for things whether it's sexuality and gender conversations, where we're true to God's word, where you'll face great opposition. It will stand for things, whether it's helping all of our people use their gifts and welcome all kinds of people to our church who are sinners struggling by grace. You'll face opposition. People will look at this church and go, that's a liberal church. And others look at this church and go, my gosh, it is so conservative. And maybe that's a good place for us to be. But we don't really care about those conversations because we just want to be centered on the gospel the best we can. And we want to allow our body life to represent the kind of faith and humility that we so ardently long to be a part of. And you know what it takes? It doesn't take a good Bible teacher. It takes you. It takes me, it takes my family, it takes your family, it takes the youngest child in this church and it takes the oldest saint to pray and to set a guard amidst our opposition. Lastly, two applications very quickly. What are we to do? What does this teach us? It teaches us that we are to be despised and we will be despised and when that happens, You run back to our summer series in the Psalms and you think about Psalms like Psalm 137. You do not, like Nehemiah, pray that God does not forgive our enemies. You notice that he did that? He prayed that Sanballat and Tobiah wouldn't be forgiven. Rather, we give to God the difficulty of our situation like he does in Psalm 137, where he says of his enemies, would you bash, you know, oh, they, they took our babies and they bashed their heads against the rock. It's an incredibly hard passage to read, and he says, Lord, would you, would you provide justice for the world? Would you help us to seek justice, to execute mercy, and to walk humbly with our God, as Micah calls us in Micah 6.8. And so, friends, I would invite you to cry against the injustice that you see. Use the psalms for the tools that they are, and cry against injustice. And look to the Lord for your vindication, secondly, Don't take it into your own hands, but look to the Lord for your ultimate vindication because he will one day bring true righteousness and justice to all of the earth. And that's what we're going to see at the very end of the book of Nehemiah. We have resources to love, to forgive our enemies that Nehemiah didn't have because we have the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit. And we have a ministry, as I said last week, even greater than John the Baptist because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to to give us confidence, to listen to our great warrior, prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus, who says to us, fight, pray, and set a guard. Amen? Amen? Let's pray.